Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. Today I'm joined by Michael Weston. Um, Michael's all the way over in WA and, and Michael is a motivational and very inspirational workplace speaker who's going to share with us his, his story on uh, acquired brain injury and mental health issues and then how he's risen above and um, come out the other side. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. So, Michael, let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about your work history and career kind of prior to the incident? Sure. Um, I worked in the mining industry for about 20 years, um, 16 years of which I'd worked in the iron ore industry in Western Australia. And um, I pretty much lived and worked in the Pilbara region of West Australia and for the Eastern States people. Um, I used to work probably about 16, 1700 k's north of Perth. So that makes, puts it into perspective for people where they're living, you know. Um, so, yeah, 16 years with one company, Iron Ore Company. Um, did several different roles, multiple roles, um, lived in different towns such as places like Parabdu and Yandy Kajina, which was a FIFO area, um, lived with my family in a place called Wickham in WA and my last role, which was in, um, I lived in Karath with my family and um, my last role was working in I probably worked about 10 minutes away, which is a place called Dampier. Yeah. And I was a maintenance um, support superintendent and overlooked um, two ports, which is Parker Point and uh, EII, it was called. And um, I overlooked um, areas such as conveyors, cranage transport, um heavy and light vehicle workshops and plant workshops. Had about uh, 180, 190 staff that um, worked in that team and about 30 to 60 contractors. And basically my responsibility and our responsibility as a team was to um, uh, execute a, a shut, maintenance shut, week to week, safely and Obviously, on time, yeah. Did you like it? Was it, was it a career that you enjoyed? I, I loved mining. Um, I absolutely loved it. But this particular role I, I really loved it was uh, one of those roles that, um, as my wife calls, I, was, I must have been a masochist, you know, because uh, I lived day by day by Gantt charts Monday to Friday. It was very highly stressful and demanding. Um, but I really love the people I worked with. I love the, the environment up there in the Pilbara. And, um, yeah, just I think those outcomes at the end of the tunnel, there was light and we'd all work hard as a team and, yeah, and get through the other end. Very, very, um, was very, um, uh, I suppose, rewarding, you know, to, um, to, to do this, this role, you know. 
Yeah, I love it. And you, did you have any awareness around mental health issues or was mental health in the workplace talked about much or not at all? Yeah, um, good question. Mental health, I suppose, had been started to be talked about. This was around um, when I had an incident. Uh, it was about 2013. So it was probably about two years' worth from 211 to 213 where the business and leaders started to talk more about mental health and awareness. Um, but I don't think everyone really knew what that looked like, what that comprised of, and um, we really, I suppose, put a lot of the emphasis back onto EAP, you know, counselling places and services that could help our staff but as far as leaders and even the workforce mental health and work uh, well-being was something that was really new to us you know and that's not unusual for that time period and yeah. for now I guess for some yeah. for some organizations so things were ticking along fairly well fairly normally and then there was an incident Can, was there anything before we get to the incident leading up that you look back on and think there was something going on or was the incident just completely out of the blue? Yeah, no, another good question is um, I, I think everyone will remember around 2011, 2012, the, the GFC, you know, the world economics had changed um, and a lot of businesses, whether you be a a small deli to a, a large corporation. A lot of businesses were looking at getting um, a more for less, if you like, and um, I suppose putting more responsibility on individuals and I suppose getting more efficiencies out of people. And it wasn't about working harder, it was working smarter, you know. Um, for me, you know, looking back for me, it's all hindsight, but I, I was doing a lot of long hours. You know, I was doing 16-hour days when really I should have probably been doing a 10-hour day in that role in mining or 12 hours. Um, also, those extra hours that I was doing was really non-efficient. You know, I was actually creating more work in the end. Um, I was getting quite thin-skinned as well. Mm. Um, Usually things that would uh, be in a meeting or something small that would come out, I'd, I'd have fairly thick skin and, you know, be able to have that resilience. But I noticed I was getting a little bit thin-skinned and things would get under me a little bit, you know. Right. So I was, you know, I was a little bit bitey but not um, excessively. Um, and just um, I think the out-of-control side of things in the way of... Um, what I assumed or perceived as workload. You know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but it's all hindsight. I think I looked at everything that was happening at the time and just thought I'd just chuck all the work in my backpack and just keep loading it up and just push through. But the warning signs were there where less sleep, longer hours, getting a bit short-fused, thin-skinned and... Um, and making, starting to make mistakes, you know. Because you were so overwhelmed with the amount of things that needed to be done. Yeah, and I think we, um, 
we lose focus of, you know, we have this tunnel vision, we put those blinkers on and I think part of that resilience is, um, as even children, you know, we're always building resilience from being a baby to the time you go to school, you're meeting new friends and you're learning new things and it's stressful and then you go to a new job, you know, your first day in a new job and, you know, there's all those things that, happen in our lives with stress and we seem to overcome them but I think that I was I suppose still had those blinkers on and I thought you know what I'm just going to push on and push on and push on I'll get through this but really not seeing not able to see my own warning signs of you know I needed some help you know I was inundated with my workload yeah yeah I get it so prior to that Pushing through, pushing through, I just get through it. That worked for you, did it? Because that's, that's what we do. Yeah, it did, you know. Um, and I think stress for me throughout my years and especially the lead-up for me was I couldn't feel stress. It, um, it's, it's hard to explain, but I, people say, well, did you, did you identify it? Could you feel anything? And not really. It was just, you know... I just kept thinking that I was probably a little bit weak and, you know, a little bit tired and, you know, just build a bridge and get over it type thing, you know. Um, So I didn't actually feel it so much. It was just more so my my mindset, you know, and I would. I'd just push through and just keep going, you know. Yeah, which a lot of us do. I'm sure lots of people can relate to that. So... What happened on that? I've got the date here. It's the 19th of April, 2013, etched in your memory, in your family's memory, no doubt. So what happened, Michael? Um, So, like I say, we've been in mining for 20 years and for the past 20 years, our ritual, our family ritual, my wife and I, was pretty much to get up every morning at 4.30 in the morning every day. I, I suppose I would say that I'm, uh, if I was to use an analogy, or I would, I'm a bit of a sloth in the morning. <laughs> I'm a bit of a slow starter. I'm not one of those people that can just get up at 10 minutes before starting work and just grab a coffee, jump in the car or whatever and go to work. I need that time for that brain to get moving, you know. So, yeah, for 20 years, my wife and I had got up at 4.30 every morning, had a shower, got dressed and about uh, quarter two or so, have a cup of tea, a bit of toast, and um, we'd usually chat about our, our day ahead for both of us and talk about what the kids had ahead with um, school and um, talk about the, the weekend that we were obviously looking forward to. But this particular day was... I couldn't, what I'm about to convey with you now is I can't actually remember anything uh, of that particular day. So it's everything that my wife conveyed back to me later. But uh, I'd been sitting at the kitchen table with her having tea and toast and having a chat, but it was really a one, one-sided conversation. My wife was talking, but I was nodding, saying the odd yes and no, but um, very... Very little speech from me, you know, conversation from my side. So 
she noticed a few things but didn't say anything and probably about five o'clock in the morning after brushing my teeth I kissed her goodbye and she said look you know you're not looking right something's different and you're quiet is everything okay I said, yeah, I don't know. I'm just feeling a little bit nervous under my skin. And for her, that wasn't Michael speak. Mm. You know, nervous under the skin was, well, Michael doesn't talk that way. So she said, what do you mean by nervous under your skin? And I said, I don't know. I just feel like I'm shaking, but it, you can't physically see it. I can feel it under my skin. Right. So she was obviously concerned at that and said, look, you know, no work is only 10 minutes away. Are you okay to drive to work? I don't want you, you know, falling ill on the way or anything happening. So I said, yeah, I'm fine. I've just got a mountain of work on my shoulders and a lot of things on my mind and, you know, everything will be okay. I just need to get to work and get over, get through it, you know. So I kissed goodbye and walked out the front door and um, I was later found by my neighbour uh, laying face down on the driveway uh, next to my work car. And um, it was that time of the day where the, the sun had only just been coming up and everything, um, shadows from the, the, the houses and things like that. And he, he saw my high-vis uh, jacket on the ground. And at first when he looked across the road, he thought, oh, Michael's just dropped his jacket when he came home last night. But... The more he looked, he could see my computer bag and water bottle. Everything was spread out, so he thought he'd investigate. And, um, again, I don't remember anything of this, but um, my neighbour conveyed that, um, that when he came across myself that I was laying face down, uh, I was unresponsive, um, I was white to look at, cold to touch, um, and so he... Uh, rolled me over and got me into fetal position and administered first aid. Um, I did come to and um, had a big exhale, if, inhale, if you like, and um, but I was in and out of consciousness. So he raised the alarm with my wife at the front door and she was obviously Gosh. pretty ecstatic about what was happening, you know. I don't know whether that's the right word, but, she, yeah, she was pretty taken by what she saw. Mm. And from there, um, you know, on a funny side, and we, we, we laugh at these things later in life, and my wife and I laugh at a lot of things these days because if you don't, you, you can be stuck in that realm of uh, depressed state, I suppose. And um, when I was in and out of consciousness, uh, my wife kept saying, look, stay with us, stay with us, you know, this isn't your time. And uh, my response was, um, I'm going to be late for a meeting. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, if I wasn't going to die that day, uh, I reckon my wife was very close to doing it for me. <laughs> Jeez, you're a dedicated employee. But I share that with people because it, it really... Um, it really conveys how it shows how, or I suppose, committed I was and with work. Yeah. How how, how overwhelmed I was. Yeah, you know, um, here I was on death's door, and I'm worrying about a meeting I was going to be late for. You know. Wow. Um, so yeah, the ambulance was called again. I don't remember much of that. I got into a hospital. 
was like Hollywood. You know, all I saw was the lights brushing by on the roof um, and they did every test known to man and I was in and out of consciousness so they, they couldn't actually work out what was really wrong because they said, well, you, you are a strange one and my wife will say, yes, he is. <laughs> um, but I was in and out of consciousness but my, all my vital signs were normal but about three o'clock in the afternoon, my doctors spoke with my leaders as well as my wife just to get a, I suppose, a, a look into what um, what the lead-up was and what my life looked like prior to me, me collapsing out the front of the house. And it was clear then that the, the work, the type of work and the demand and the stress involved they put it down to like a fight or flight, if you like. Yeah. Those humans, we need to live with stress. We can't live without stress. But I suppose I was just in that moment, in that tunnel vision for so many months, just absorbing stress and trying to just keep pushing through that um, I've been fighting all that time, but the body decided to, you know, it's mm. flight time. And I know your legs want to go to work, but um, you're not going to today. Yeah. Um, but to put it in, um, I suppose, more medical terms is I had what they call as a synapse, which is a, a fainting episode. But what followed that was a hypoxic anoxia, which was loss of oxygen to the brain. So Right. Um, this is making sense now. Okay. Yeah. So your, your body was protecting yourself. It, yeah. It's like when we go into a panic attack, there's... Yeah. One of two things that will happen. One is after around about 10 minutes or so, we will naturally start to regain our breath and, and, and be able to maintain and, and then move back down the anxiety scale. Or our body goes nap and then unconscious so that we can then start to regulate and get the oxygen in. Yeah. What happened with you? You kind of moved into that nap. We're not doing this anymore. We're going to pass out but you were starved of oxygen whilst that happened yeah that's correct is that rare it is rare it's not rare for people to collapse but um it's pretty rare for you to lose oxygen because they were i suppose concerned that i'd hit my head and that was the reason for the, the loss of oxygen to the brain but um there's a lot of unanswered um, questions to it, but the the brain is an amazing. I always thought the heart was the the most precious organ, which it is. But the brain can um, tell the heart to stop beating too. Amazing, <laughs> yeah. it's wow. really amazing. Yeah. So right. So sorry, I got excited. Then. Right. Keep, keep going. Tell the story. What happened then? So the doctors, I mean, being up in a place like Karatha, the hospital is only equipped with so many things that they can test you on. And from what they could see in scans and all the blood tests, that everything was fine at this stage, all the heart was fine. Um, so it was really put down to pure exhaustion. Mm. Um, um, so I was just told to go home, rest for two weeks and just... Do turn that phone off, don't do any work and just relax. Obviously, I had uh, medical appointments to still go and see doctors and get more tests done to make sure that they hadn't missed anything. But for two weeks, I've pretty much been um, 
I suppose, comatose, mm. lying on the lounge. Um, I suppose my wife was in safety, so she used the analogy. She said that the way I see you now, the way your body is, it's almost like a heat stress person, person that's gone through heat stress where their their body's just exhausted and they just need those energy levels just re-energised, if you like. Um, so I ended up having three weeks off as it was. Um, but the medical fraternity couldn't come out with anything that, you know, there was anything wrong. So, you know, I thought, well, I've got to get back to work. I've get it, got to get back on the horse. Um, so I decided to um, go back to work. Um, but there was a, a real scary moment there where I was going to the front gates of the mine site, uh, the plant at, um, in Dampier, and I got to the gates and prior to probably 100 metres from getting there, I started to shake profusely. Mm. Um, my forehead was just beating with sweat to the point that it got so much it dripped down my face. The palms of my hands were all sweaty, um, but my feet, more than I always remember my feet, were, you could wring my socks out, they was that wet. And at this stage, I didn't know what all this was. It was just something that was happening to me that was new. It was bloody scary. Yeah, it was yeah. very scary. I was wondering what was going on. And again, looking back now, as I think about those words to my wife, that I felt nervous at, under my skin. Yeah. Now I'm feeling nervous outside of my skin. Mm. And I was later to find out that, you know, from my doctor that it was anxiety mm. and it was panic attack and it was... Again, our bodies are amazing. The body was protecting me. It's saying, you're not ready to go back in through that gate. Um, but I couldn't see anything wrong with doing that because there was nothing conclusive that was wrong with me. So I thought, you know, being a male uh, in mining, um, you know, I'm a leader, I'm a superintendent, I've got a group that's being, I suppose, babysitted by another superintendent at the moment who's taking on more workload, you know. So yeah, I felt that requirement to get in there and, you know, pull my weight. Um, but once I did, I went through those gates, but it was uh, pure confusion from that day forward because I was finding that I wasn't actually able to understand people's sentences in context. Um, I wasn't speak. My speech was mixed up. My words were very mixed up in the sentence. A bit like when we mix up, uh, when we say it's hot, when we're really saying it's cold. But I was mixing sentences. So I thought I was going crazy at first, you know. I couldn't um, even problem solve, even the, the easiest of... Um, things to problem, a task to problem solve. So I was feeling quite vulnerable at that stage. Yeah. I got to the point where I I actually requested to take a little bit longer to get better and um, I ended up going into, a, I suppose, a open engineer with some a side project on conveyor health, if you like. But I ended up doing that for three months because... 
over those three months, I found things were getting worse. Right. I was very forgetful. My memory was, I had this, you'd say something to me five minutes ago and I'd forget it. Mm. Um, I couldn't understand any instructions. I was actually part of this conveyor project. I was walking through plant and I'd actually forget why I was there or where I was going. Um, I'd have a plan to do. I'd go out there and I'd go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I remember a day that was a bit of a turning point for me was I was walking this quite a long conveyor belt. It takes about two hours to walk back and forth and the idea was to look for, I suppose, preventative maintenance on this belt. And I'd already walked it up and down, so it took me two hours in 40-plus degree heat and, um, and then I started walking it again. And I got a third of the way down and I remember a person coming, pulling over in the car and saying, hey, um, haven't you already walked that belt? And I, I looked through my paperwork and thought, actually, I have. And I did remember. And so I had this facade about, I said to this guy, hey, well, I'm just coming back to check on something else. Mm. Um, and as he drove off, I ended up walking back into the middle of nowhere where it was quiet and I broke down. I had a mental breakdown where I was um, bawling my eyes out, made sure no one was around, that no one could see me mm. um, because I was really unsure what was going on here, you know. So what happened was my my leaders really were concerned about my concerns and said, look, you know, we'll support you in any way we can. Why don't you, how about we give you a different leadership role that's less responsibility? But my thinking was I couldn't even manage myself. Right. Um, and I thought I was going crazy. So I actually requested to self-demote myself and to my general managers, you know, just shock and horror that, I actually asked to transfer to rail and just shovel blue metal out of a wheelbarrow onto the side of a rail yard. And she was quite taken by that and said, well, you know, you're joking, aren't you? I said, no, because that's what I feel that I'm confident. Because I was going through feelings of I couldn't do the role I used to do. The medical fraternity was saying that nothing was wrong. Yeah. And... It wasn't that people were dismissive in my, the colleagues weren't dismissive, but we weren't knowingly, we didn't understand what mental health was. And, you know, when I'd say things like, oh, I'm forgetful all the time, oh, how old are you? You know, don't worry about it. Right? Or I'm very thin-skinned at the moment. I feel, you know, I was, I was trying to say that I'm breaking down, but I, I used the words thin-skinned. Yeah. Oh, you know, we all get like that. You know, we all get like that in our job. So I just kept thinking it was just me all the time. So, but I think that day on that conveyor was a turning point because I went home to my wife and said, look, you know, I've got all these issues that are happening to me. I know they're real. But I feel no one's listening to me, but there's no conclusive medical evidence to show that I've got anything wrong with me. So I decided to take a journal 
um, and I wrote down everything that would happen in my day, yeah. my schedule. And the idea was to, I suppose, either confirm that I was going mad or confirm that something really was wrong. Either way, it's not good. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I think back now, you know, the thought that I was walking around a plant, you know, I was very high in safety in my my mind, my workings, if you like, day to day. Um, and the thought that I was walking around through a plant with moving parts and machinery, getting lost, couldn't problem solve, all those things was, and breaking down, was a real concern looking back, you know. But I ended up taking all those, that journal back to my GP and my, my leaders and it was clear that there was something significantly wrong. So they flew me down back down to Perth to see a neuropsychologist um, and amongst brain scans and everything to get done. But the neuropsychologist um, was a probably a, the hardest thing that I've had to endure as far as exams go. So I went with my wife and my wife stayed there for half an hour out of a three-hour exam and she gave her input in to the changes she saw in me. But what I can tell you about this this exam is I was trying to put um, wood puzzles together. I wasn't very good at that. Drawing dot to dot, you know, people would normally see, even as kids, you know, there was a bird there, but I couldn't really, I couldn't see that bird. Um, even the, the memory games where, you know, the, the neuropsych would, call out a number of names and words and I'd have to recall them and I just couldn't do it and it was getting worse and worse. And I was crying throughout this, shaking profusely and as the professor said, look, you know, you've just got to push through. We've got to get through this. I know it's hard, but we're going to get some answers for you. So we did. We got some answers about a month or two later and found out that, you know, I had all these... Um, issues with my short-term memory, quite uh, profound losses with short-term memory loss, um, problem-solving issues, um, learning, anything to do with new learning, you know, because I couldn't absorb it, problem-solve. Do they all relate to one specific area of the brain, those particular functions? Yeah, it's... Um, it's I, believe it's off the top of my head um, because I do, I think it's the left side, yeah, the, the frontal lobal. And for the listeners out there, if I got it wrong, okay, it's the right yeah, side. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> got me thinking, I wonder if all of those functions are specific to a particular area, you know, and, and yeah. that, that's why it's those symptoms. Yes, that particular area so that's all that executive function um, all those type of functions that uh, that were affected I suppose um, I think the word hippocampus comes to mind and there's a lot of I'm not a medical I've got a 16 page report there that says quite a lot of it I can never remember it all you know um, but in layman's terms um, 
I suppose the, the biggest thing for me was my short-term memory. I, I just couldn't remember things. And um, the professor put in layman's terms for me that the neurotransmitters transfer information from one to another. And when that reaction, that chemical imbalances is there, the, the message doesn't transfer from one neurotransmitter to the other. So in layman's terms, he said, look, it's it's almost like the old telephone exchange, you know, when someone was making a call and that telephone operator put that peg in the right hole to get to the other side. It was like that person was on lunch break. <laughs> but as I said to him, it feels like someone's on long service leave in my brain, you know. That's funny. Um, so, yeah, after I didn't. I suppose to say that I was um, happy was not an understatement when uh, we were told this. Yeah. Um, my wife was quite shocked that I was relieved to and happy about this information. But as the professor says, you know, if you haven't had any conclusive evidence around all your worries and concerns about yourself and then to have something in front of you and say, you're right, there is a problem here. I suppose it's a bit of a form of relief, if you like. There's also the double-edged sword as well where you're saying, well, you know, for me it was what have I done? Yeah. What have I done? I've I've worked myself to near death and for what, you know? Um, I, I assumed that this workload was bigger than what it was. I perceived that the, the business required me to work all those hours, but it wasn't actually. It was just my, I suppose, my um, work ethic, if you like, and my upbringing and, you know, and I put myself in that situation. So, yeah, it was a real troubling time. So... What was the diagnosis then? What was the final kind of conclusion around the, the, the symptoms and um, what you were experiencing every day after that event where you collapsed? So it was an acquired brain injury and I had four exams that I did. So I ended up seeing another three neuropsychologists and getting scans done. So... It wasn't that I didn't um, accept the first report. I just wanted that just to feel safe in my own mind that, you know, this is this is real. And it was, yeah, it was basically a quiet brain injury. Um, it was permanent. Um, but it's not that you can't rebuild neurotransport pathways. So... I, the business put me through occupational therapy um, while I was working. I'd do a six-hour day and also do this occupational therapy, but it became so difficult for me to do both. I was falling asleep through the occupational therapy. Um, I'd also just recently um, um, self, I suppose, I, I went into a different role of um, I, I actually requested to do a different role, a less role, if you like, and self-demoted myself. Um, and I, it wasn't on the rail 
<laughs> the rail gang shoveling. But I basically was doing what I was doing before, was looking for preventive maintenance on the conveyors, just walking 10 to 15 k's a day. And I suppose that was about me, more so me being able to walk belts and just be by myself and think and have that time to problem solve. But it got so much that um, it just got too much for me to do, be doing both work and that um, to a point that I broke down severely at, at workplace um, and I broke down in front of my supervisors and he called my wife who was working on site at the time as well because she was working in the safety team and said, look, you know, this, you aren't right. <laughs> you know, I know you've got this um, acquired brain injury. I know you've got the, the brain things, but there's something else going on here, you know, um, which was little did I know was my mental health, you know. Um, so I, I'd gone back to the doctor. I'd laid in bed for, even though my, the, my supervisor had told me to look, you know, or not told me, but suggested that I really suggest you, you go to a GP. You need to get some help. I was still in denial. I still had this facade of like, um, this can't happen to me. You know, I'm a man in mining and, I'm, I'm a father of children, I'm, I've got a wife, you know, I'm, I'm better than this. I thought it was so much stigma was inside my brain, you know. Um, so little did, you know, my supervisor know I didn't go and see the GP for 48 hours. I actually stayed at home in bed and I just pulled that blanket over and I just didn't want to. That was my security blanket. Um, I didn't convey any speech with my wife or my kids apart from good morning and that was it but after 48 hours I think my wife was really concerned said look you know life is okay the sun's shining you're still living breathing you've got a wonderful family we live in a great place we've got a great job um, you need to go and see GP so I did and got some help which was the best thing I ever did was actually speak to a person that was qualified, um, that could actually listen to my, my concerns, how I was feeling, no judgment. Um, and the best words that came out of my GPs, my doctor's mouth was, you're one of one million people around Australia at the moment with depression that we know of. Um, and it is common and we can help you, you know. There's light, there's hope. Um, so I then went, saw a psychologist and a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression and PTSD. Um, yeah. From the incident where you collapsed and the time you were in hospital? Yeah, so the trauma from the actual incident, just, I suppose, thinking of all the what-ifs all the yeah. time. Yeah. If I hadn't have got through yeah. My wife was left a widow. You yeah. Know, kids without a father and, you know, what if I didn't work as hard as I did and all those all those things running through your mind when you're you do. Especially when because to to for people to think that you know, to get 
so stressed and to have your anxiety levels so aroused that it led you to collapse. Yes. That's not atypical. That's not a normal stress response. That's an indicator that your fight, flight, freeze response is going far out. This yes. is too much. So that, 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 that in itself tells us something's not quite right. Exactly. It's, wow, Michael, you have been through, well, you've just gone about everywhere, I reckon, with your journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think my, my message that I give to people is the reason why I speak about the brain side of things, the, the, the injury that I sustained and still live with today is Mental health, if, it, if there was ever a message to break down the stigma of mental health, I would have a brain injury any day of the week and I'm, I'm sh- certainly not um, diluting yeah. one else with a brain injury because my brain injury is very minimal compared to what obviously some levels of brain injuries are. But for me, um, I've got compensation strategies in place that I can work with my short-term memory loss and my speech. I still have rehab with speech and things like that. So I can live with that. My message as far as the stigma goes is the mental health challenges I had with anxiety and depression were so debilitating in my life. Um, They really crippled me. And um, I did come out the other side. Um, but people really need to understand, not just from the person actually going through it, but the people that are around people with mental health. You know, we treat people with a broken arm or a leg or a strained hamstring or anything like that as an illness, as an injury. Um, and brain health is an illness. Yeah, absolutely. And it needs to have recovery and um rehabilitation to get back on board and you will get it through the other side but we need to break that stigma so people can step up and say either I need help or I can identify that person absolutely right yes you're so right so you've got then you have your diagnosis of PTSD anxiety and depression from your beautiful GP who just sounds like a gem if only all GPs were Uh, you know, as switched on. So then you've got another journey to go through to kind of understand what's this all about and how can I recover? So what happened? So as I said, I was doing the rehab as well as working in Caratha, Western Australia, and my wife will tell you I was falling asleep while I was doing the the cognitive rehabilitation program. Um, Even the speech side of things, I just couldn't. You know, I was so exhausted. And with the depression as well, it was counteracting, I suppose, counterproductive and it just wasn't working. So I suppose we made a conscious decision as uh, my wife and I to leave the business, just finish work altogether, relocate from Caratha back to Perth, Western Australia, and I suppose commit fully to my recovery, I suppose, the rehabilitation. Yeah. So I did. I, I found another GP that was equally as great. Good. Um, which is 
also concerning when you've already gone through such a big journey as people will know themselves. You know, you've got to then translate that to another GP and hope that they have that same empathy and, you know, passion to help you through. So he was fantastic. And I did cognitive rehab for and speech therapy, amongst other things, for about two years. Wow. And it wasn't that I couldn't speak. It was just the mixing of words. I think they call it... The word salad, is it? Aphasia. Aphasia. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's how you pronounce it. But I was very much on the lower scale, you know. Yeah. So doing all those things. So now I'm self-managing my time because I've gone through that with my occupational therapist who I'm going to name her because she's fantastic. Do it. Hi, Alison Self. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Just an amazing woman, you know. Um, She um, just put me in. There was another lady um, as well. There's so many people that group together to help me through this journey, you know, and they're just amazing people. But Alison Self, she was just an amazing occupational therapist, you know, just amazing. And, yeah, so I got through that. But my next challenge was... Even though I was permanently disabled with this brain injury, um, I found that I I couldn't. I found it very difficult to re-enter the workforce um, because even to go to somewhere like Bunnings, you know, you'd go for an interview and say, um, "So tell us about yourself." Well, you know, without putting a negative spin on it, you still have to be upfront and share with them your challenges from day to day and say, well, look, you know, I'm very committed at working hard and I'm very loyal and good with people, um, but I do have problem-solve issues. My memory is very bad. Um, I get distracted by bright, shiny things. So things will happen and I'll digress. Um, And you, you start, I get mentally fatigued very easy and the way I used to explain it to my wife you know I'd do that I suppose that role play hey you're just the person we're after (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it was very hard to get any work so my occupational therapist says well look just in the meantime why don't you you've got so much many learnings and good things to share, why don't you start taking a journal down? But I suppose I, I started doing that, but the journal didn't look very pretty because I was scrubbing letters out and words because I, I'm learning to respell and my vocab wasn't that great. So I started doing it on the computer and as the, I suppose, the literature, all the, the stories got greater and greater and got bigger and bigger, I, I decided to do a website blog. Mm. And, um, yeah, started jotting everything down and people around the world started to look and share their stories as well. And I thought, well, I'd like to become a speaker, you know. Um, And I'd been speaking to my psychologist at that time about, you know, my I suppose I was in more depression again because I couldn't get any Any meaningfulness in work, you know. And she said, well, what, what do you think you'd like to do? I said, well, 
I'd like to go and do workplace speaking and share my story and my learnings and and she she had a little bit of a laugh and she it was not dismissive because we had that really good relationship and she said oh it's just amazing your how you're striving to want to do this because you're going through occupational therapy, cognitive rehab, speech therapy, all these things, and here you are, you want to go and speak in front of an audience. And I said, well, I'm going to do it one day, and I, you know, all these stories on my website will be part of that, and um, I did it, so, yeah. God, you've done so well. How long, so how long do you feel like you've kind of, how long did it take you to to make the decision around I'm going to go out and share my story personally rather than on my website, etc.? From making that decision, how much time roughly passed till you get in your first speaking gig? Um, it took me about a year. To let people know who you are, where you are and right. Yeah, that was difficult in itself because... Yeah. Um, I just finished me finished my cognitive rehab and I was self managing I suppose and still do it to this day to keep you know help me through my days. Um, but I was I suppose the and a message to anyone out there if you've strained your muscle if you've broken your leg we all tend to push a little bit beyond the boundaries and that's great because you, you're striving to get better quicker but some things need to be left and just go through those motions and I was very much like that not so much the brain side of things but with the mental health mm. and um, I remember speaking to my psychologist and she said look it's great you, you're pushing through to have this business and be able to share with everyone your story, but you just, I think you need to slow down because I'm seeing the signs that you're going, you're defaulting back into your old inner self of the superintendent in iron ore business in the mining, you know, and she said, I'm not dismissing what you're trying to do or dragging you back down, but you just need to take baby steps. Mm -hmm. But I didn't listen to her and I, I was stubborn male and I pushed through and I did. I had a setback and I went back into depression. Yeah. So I see that as a, a good and a bad thing because I learned from it. Exactly. Uh, I learned from We all learn from our... Relapses uh, are exactly it builds a library of information up, and each time we can pull from that library, oh, hello, I remember this exactly. And again, I keep referring back to us building resilience as kids and as children. You know, when a child runs, and you know that they're only still getting their feet, and you say, "Well, don't run here because you're going to trip and you know scrape your knees on the on the road or the path and." Um, but a child's not listening. They're going, why? <laughs> oh, I'm going to try that. And they fall over, but that memory goes in. It's a life experience and they, they set back, they, they re-evaluate, reflect, and they change their ways. So I suppose that's what I did, you know. Yeah, all part of the recovery journey. Yeah. I thought this website that I did all the stories, I thought that it was... 
my story was going to be very isolated. And I don't mean just from the, the brain side, but just workplace stress in general um, and how that relationship is with our mental health and the work-life balance. Yeah. But I was blown away by, I thought it was just going to go maybe to a few people in Perth, maybe in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, but it went to over 100 countries around the world and we were just bombarded by these emails and these messages of um, people going through either themselves, their family members, friends, colleagues. So there was a real clear message that a lot of people going through mental health challenges in their lives and um, it's, it is very common and a lot of people don't actually realise that a lot of stigma is what stops us from getting better or coming forward. So um, that's what I share now in speaking to businesses and community and um, it's amazing how people come out and I'll use those words, come out, and they, they speak to you either in a group and they're, they're empowered to speak or they'll come up to you in a one-on-one situation and say, you know what, I loved what you said about that. I thought it was just me. You know, um, I've read about other people having going through what I've gone, but now I've heard you speak and that was my life, you know. That was my life. Um, so it's very humbling the work I do now, you know. Oh, when I said at the start, inspirational, like kind of <laughs> inspirational, it, you bloody well are, that I cannot get over your story. And, and I'm glad you're telling people your story. I really am. You'd have been wasted shoveling coal on the side of the railway track. Thank you. It wasn't going to work. Absolutely mind-blowing and how you've come out the other side now and, and, and used your experience for others is just so commendable. Thank you. Honestly, you're a lovely man. Your wife's a very lucky lady, you know. I just, I can feel that it, you're all the way in WA. I'm in bloody Brisbane, but I can feel the genuineness and authenticity coming from you. Yeah, my wife is an amazing person and I... I really feel and can only imagine how hard it is with people without a support network Um, because my wife is just, she's my carer now. She comes to all my talks as well. It's not that I can't go by myself. Um, It's more so I'll get lost in airports and things like that. Sometimes anxiety might sneak in and take mindfulness back in and meditate and but when you need to be somewhere for a, a talk in Brisbane or Sydney, wherever, or WA, it's, you know, Donna helps me there to get me from A to B. And, and it's good as well because Donna shares the partner's perspective, you know, of what she saw, the lead up and, you know, the learnings as well. But, yeah, she is an amazing person. It's a fabulous story. You're doing brilliant work. So if anybody wants to know more about um you and the work that you're doing or wants to book you to talk in their workplaces where's the best place to get the info yep you can go on to michaelweston.com.au um and that's weston w-e-s-t-o-n not earn (laughs) 
Um, and you can also go on to Beyond Blue. Um, I'm also an ambassador speaker for um, for Beyond Blue, so you can also go through Beyond Blue. Excellent. Michael, just to wrap up, is there anything you, you want to kind of, any last final statement that you want to make or anything that you'd like to say that we haven't covered? I suppose the only thing in, in very short um, that I, I, I forgot to cover was the importance to build resilience in your life. Um, I learned it very early in the early stages for your mental health. You can have your your GPs and your psychologists and counsellors to and your friends and colleagues to speak to every day um, to help you get through these things. Um, but it's important to have your, I suppose, mental health as a holistic approach. And I found that, um, you know, healthy eating, um, get being active and being mindful while you're active, as my psychologist says, you know, what do you do when you walk? I, I usually talk with my wife and we chat, chat, says, well, try and say nothing and just be mindful. Listen to what's in the, what's going around you. Feel your feet touch the ground or use all your senses, you know. Um, but all those things, the meditation, massage, use all those in your life because if I had have um, ad adapted that into my working life prior to my incident, I would have had a different outlook on life and my work ethic, I suppose. I would have, I suppose, done a lot more mindfulness during my work before work, after work, and that would have been more sustainable. But unfortunately, I've found, it's all hindsight, I've found out this later, you know, which is why great podcasts like yourself is about sharing all that knowledge, you know. So that people can catch it as soon yeah. as possible. So factoring in self-care as a priority in workplaces, I am 100% with you on that. Absolutely. Most successful people... Uh, prioritise their health and health is mental health, physical health, prioritise that alongside targets and key messages and profits and money and all of those things. Self-care is not a selfish act. It's an essential act for us to stay well and be the best we possibly can. You're absolutely right. And can I add one more happy memory is um, my granddaughter, Whenever I go down to the beach and there's grass area on the beach, my wife and I go down there and I go there to meditate. Uh, I can meditate anywhere, but I love going down to the beach. We take our, um, our granddaughter and she was only one and a half years of age at the time and I was meditating with, I like to do it with a bit of Bali meditation music, you know, just background spa music. And she heard that and... She sat on my lap and just listened during that time I massaged. I, I was doing meditation. Um, so the second time we took her down there, she said, Bali, Bali. And she grabbed my phone and she pressed play on it. She sat in my lap and I've got video of it. And we're going to put it on a blog because I share it in my talks. Is she just sat there for 10 minutes and just meditated. So it shows that we can even teach our young ones 
in earlier life to be resilient in that side of things. And learn the, the strategies, the self-care strategies from three years old. Brilliant. That is absolutely right. Thanks for um, inviting me today. It was fantastic. Oh, an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. It really has been a pleasure. Fabulous. Thanks for your time. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.